Section 15 of An Explorer in the Air Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham. Section 15. Observation and Night Pursuit. Two new problems arose in the summer of 1918. The first was the necessity of teaching observation pilots to fly DH-4s. The second was the demand for pilots who could undertake the dangerous work of night pursuit. When the DH-4s with the Liberty Motor began to arrive from the United States, conditions at Field 7 were such that there seemed to be more room there and a better chance of successful operation without interference with the regular work of the field than at any other point. In the meantime, Field 10 was secured, and especially prepared to meet the need for a large field devoted entirely to instruction on DH-4 planes. This was the only plane that was being manufactured in the United States for use at the front. While not at all adapted for combat work, it was probably originally intended as a two-seater fighter. As a matter of fact, it was used by observation and bombing squadrons. The training of observers was carried on at Tours at the Second Aviation Instruction Center. Here at Field 10, we attempted the instruction of observation pilots and aimed to give them some knowledge of what the observer was trying to do. There was a ground course planned to cover from two to five days and meant to give the pilot an elementary knowledge of the work carried on in an observation squadron. It was given by officers who had seen service at the front and who were able to impress the student with the importance of the work. This was all the more necessary because the average pilot, longing for the excitement of pursuit squadron activity, was inclined to look with little favor on the actual routine that was before him. Lectures on the organization of the ground forces, intended to give familiarity with methods of attack and defense used by both artillery and infantry. Lectures on interpretation of aerial photography, intended to teach the pilot the value of the photographic work done on his missions, and lectures on the methods of cooperation with the other branches of the service were given from time to time. Tactical and Strategical Reconnaissance A thorough explanation of the use of the compass and its importance in cloudy or foggy weather, explanation of the other instruments used in aerial navigation, interpretation of things seen on the ground and their respective importance, studies of the organization and actual experience of observation squadrons, the kind of preparation needed for an artillery mission, a pilot's duties on a photographic mission, the importance of contact patrol, lectures on the Liberty Motor and the use of this somewhat complicated set of instruments in front of the pilot's seat in a DH-4 were given as well as possible under the circumstances. 
due to the pressing demand from the front that observation pilots be sent up immediately and due to the large number of crashes of the dh-4s flown by inexperienced pilots it was felt that every available minute of flying weather should be taken advantage of even at the cost of missing some of the important lectures this was very discouraging for the highly trained observers and aerial photographers who were detailed to the work of ground instruction at field ten the demand from the front however was so insistent and the mortality among dh four pilots so extraordinarily high that it was necessary to give our students all the actual flying instruction possible the first part of the course consisted of ninety minutes of dual control work with an instructor verified by a practical examination with a tester in which the student had to demonstrate his ability to make forced landings and to get his plane out of the various skids and slips into which it was thrown by the tester after satisfying the instructors of his ability to use the liberty motor correctly and to handle the dh-4 satisfactorily he was required to make a dozen good landings from an elevation of about one thousand feet and to practice sharp banks and figure eights at an altitude of about twenty five hundred feet this elementary air work covering about three hours was followed by practice in spirals first loose spirals later tight spirals with the machine banked up to ninety degrees and finally about four hours in formation flying it was not a satisfactory course but it was the best we could do under the circumstances considering the imperative demands from the front none of this work in dh fours should have been given in france the pilots came from america the ships and motors came from america so did the gas oil and spare parts everything in fact that was used at the field all this had to be brought across an ocean infested with submarines better fields for the work could easily have been found in america much nearer to the source of supply of both men and machines i suppose that for the sake of encouraging our citizens the administration thought it was better to say that one hundred and fifty dh fours had been sent to france than to say that they had been sent to an american training school of course the public did not know that the one hundred and fifty sent to france for training purposes could have been used more effectively at home and at far less expense by sending them to france it added to the total of machines shipped overseas a total that was never large enough to satisfy american public opinion the difficulties of operating these heavy ships on a wet french airdrome were enormous the necessity for bringing over so much material including gas and oil to do what should have been done in america was most unfortunate it would have saved time money and men if those dh-4s instead of being sent to american training schools in france had been used for the instruction of our personnel at home and only enough sent to the training schools in france for use in a refresher course at issoudun we ought not to have been required to do more than see that a pilot already trained on american dh-4s had a chance to learn the latest wrinkles as taught by officers just back from the front before being sent there himself 
Night flying was practically unheard of before the war. Gradually the use of night bombers became practicable, and both Paris and London were treated to frequent nocturnal visits. The answer to this was the development of night pursuit flying. It is difficult for a pilot to imagine any greater risk than being expected to take up a delicate pursuit plane at night. It had to be done, however, and Field 7, with its large expanse of open country, offered the best location. It was regrettable that the necessity of night work interfered to a certain extent with the sleep and rest of the men who were carrying on the regular duties of the work in formation flying, but this was unavoidable. It was one of our greatest disappointments that the armistice was signed just as our night pursuit pilots were receiving the finishing touches of their training in cooperation with the searchlight company. Hunting the Hun in the dark was a favorite sport of the late Captain Armstrong of the RAF, commanding officer of the 1st British Night Pursuit Squadron at the front. He himself had a record of having brought down more than 50 Hun machines, including the gigantic five-engine Gotha. One day I was crossing the street from my quarters to my office when the unaccustomed sound produced by a plane looping near the ground called my attention to the extraordinary antics of a Sopwith camel. It made loop after loop over headquarters, missing the roofs of the buildings by only a few feet, finally coming so close to the ground as to cause us all to hold our breaths as the marvellously skilful pilot pulled his ship out of a loop within a few inches of the ground, fairly touching the long grass. Then the machine was pulled straight up into a zoom of unparalleled magnitude. It stalled, fell like a leaf, fluttering from side to side, recovered, made a tight spiral incredibly near the ground, lit as gracefully as a butterfly, and hardly rolled more than a few inches. Then a small dog bounded out of the cockpit, from the pilot's lap to the ground while the pilot himself, with a novel under his arm and a smile on his face, walked nonchalantly across the airdrome. Thus did Captain Armstrong announce his arrival. One of the greatest differences between the Royal Air Forces and our own was that they believed in encouraging morale and stimulating their pilots to recklessness by such exhibitions as these, even though the most skilful pilots occasionally met their death in this fashion. Captain Armstrong himself was killed shortly after the armistice while stunting too close to a hangar. The American Air Service held that the advantages of such recklessness were more than offset by the increased chances of losing valuable lives. The war did not last long enough for us to determine which was the proper method. There is no question but that there was a far higher morale among the pilots in the British squadrons than in our own. This was due to various causes. Furthermore, I do not believe that the type of pilot that was being graduated from Issoudun during the summer and fall of 1918 needed exhibitions of this kind to make him willing and ready to take all necessary chances when he went after the Hun. Captain Armstrong was the most graceful and skillful flyer that I have ever seen. He was not quite as good in aerial combat as our own Captain Austin, 
as was shown in a famous twenty-minute struggle we were most fortunate however in being able to secure his services in starting our instruction in night pursuit planes for night pursuit work are equipped with navigation lights one at the end of each wing one on the tail and one inside the cow all of which may be turned on or off at the pleasure of the pilot there is also a signalling light placed under the seat of the ship for signalling to the ground this is used to give a code letter to the operator of the field lights so that when the pilot gets ready to land after circling the field the landing light is flashed on for his benefit in order to avoid accidents in the darkness each ship is given a number and is not supposed to land except when that number appears in the ground lights on the landing field in addition to the signal lights on the ground there are two powerful searchlights used as landing lights placed along the line of direction of the wind planes leave them on the right when taking off and landing gradually the students became accustomed to landing with less and less light and to taking off in the darkness without any lights at all finally they achieved sufficient skill to make good landings with the landing light on for only thirty seconds this practice was essential because of the necessity of having as little light as possible showing on the airdrome at the front the position of the field is constantly shown by one small red light on the ground half a dozen of the most skilful pilots that we could secure under the able leadership of captain r mellin were selected for this training they began practicing landings at night in an avro with captain armstrong in the instructor's seat after being given a sufficient number of landings and flights to enable them to get accustomed to night flying in a delicate highly manoeuvrable plane they kept on practicing until they gained sufficient confidence to fly on dark nights without having to worry about the technical side of the art our students were so good that it took only from six to ten flights with the instructor before they were ready to go solo on the same machine then followed from ten to twenty-five more landings on the avro until the pilot was confident that he knew where the ground was and had learned not to misjudge the few things which are visible even on dark nights the avro is an ideal machine for this purpose after the student had shown the necessary proficiency on the avro he was sent up in the sopwith camel a single-seater machine equipped with a one hundred and twenty horsepower motor the machine preferred by captain armstrong as being most effective for night pursuit in the camel the student practiced landing fifteen or more times until he acquired the necessary skill in connection with practice in landing the students were sent up to do the usual air work utilizing from ten to twenty-five flights in this way in accordance with their own individual difficulties in mastering the problem of correctly going through maneuvers without being able to see the horizon thus the students gradually came to be able to execute the same acrobatics at night as in the daytime during this stage also they were given experience in flying in the searchlight a very trying performance at first they also had practice in avoiding it and in sending the necessary signals after the technique of night flying in small pursuit planes was mastered 
Owing to the scarcity of sop with camels, we also used the Nieuport Type 28. The most interesting part of the work began, namely, practice in attacking night bombers. The night bomber is picked up by listening devices. His position is given to the searchlight operators, and the pursuit pilot is sent up to the known elevation of the night bomber and into his approximate location. When the pursuit pilot has reached his appointed position, he gives the signal with one of Verry's lights. Immediately the searchlights, directed by the listening devices, are turned on the night bomber, who is then held in the powerful rays. The pursuit plane comes up in the blackness behind until he is a little below and directly in the rear of his prey, and shoots from a distance of about twenty yards and at an angle of about ten degrees below the night bomber. He has plenty of time to fire deliberately and with care. Captain Armstrong used to say that the results were so satisfactory as to be hardly sportsmanlike. As a means of offsetting the successful use of the large night bombing planes, there is no doubt that the night pursuit squadrons were eminently satisfactory. In fact, it was expected that the enemy would soon have copied this development to an extent which would have made the use of the great Handley Page night bomber extremely precarious. The inability of a huge, heavily weighted bombing plane to manoeuvre with sufficient rapidity to dodge the agile scout was sure to be his undoing, particularly as there would be no friendly searchlights in the enemy country to enable him to see the scout and open fire on his assailant. The answer would be to place searchlights on the bombing plane itself, although this would make it an easier mark. It was a bitter disappointment to Captain Mellon and his group of excellent pilots that the armistice was signed in the very week that they were perfecting their ability to cooperate with the searchlight companies. After they had secured the necessary experience at the front, they would have been used as instructors to develop future night pursuit squadrons. End of section 15